Welcome to Season 6 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined us today. Before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you to all of those people that have subscribed and left a review on iTunes. It means the world to know that there are teachers all over the world that are getting something valuable out of our discussions. So thank you. Today I have the privilege of sharing with you a conversation that I had with the phenomenal Professor Dylan William. He's the author of several books including most recently Inside the Black Box, Raising Standards Through Classroom Assessment. He is the Emeritus Professor of Education Assessment at the University of College London. He has held a diverse and prolific career in teaching in urban public schools. He's directed a large-scale testing program, served as the Dean of the School of Education and pursued a research program focused on supporting teachers to develop their use of assessment in supporting learning. In this conversation, we talked about why we need to raise achievement, what formative assessment is and isn't, the power of teacher learning communities and why the same assessment instrument cannot serve multiple purposes. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to call uh, me this morning. Where are you phoning in from? I'm phoning in from a town called Stark, which is in northern Florida, halfway between Jacksonville and Gainesville. Lovely. And what's the weather like there today? It's typical Florida summer weather. So it's kind of rainy occasionally, sunny occasionally, uh, but we can you know, we, we easily get, you know, like two centimeters rain in an hour and then it'll be sunny for the rest of the day. So it's just kind of typical summer weather. in a Fantastic. Quite possibly the most important question for our discussion. What's your coffee order or drink of choice when I can finally buy you a coffee or drink? My, my coffee order is tea. I can't okay. stand coffee. I've never okay. been able to acquire a taste for it. I, I feel I'm missing out because, you know, people get really kind of exercised about it. But uh, Yorkshire tea, industrial Yorkshire strength, builder's tea. Good, strong Yorkshire tea. I'm currently drinking a, uh, a cup of Earl Grey. It's a bit weak, though. I wouldn't mind a bit of a bit of Yorkshire strength in my morning. Um, the way I feel about it, Earl Grey is if I, want, if I want perfume in my tea, I'll add it myself. <laughs> is, um, is there a book that you have recently read? It could be uh, within your field of education or could mm. be beyond that that has made you uh, reconsider a few things in your life. Curiously... Ken Robinson's book, The Element, Mm -hmm. even though I disagree with a lot of his views on education and creativity, I thought the idea of being in one's element was very powerful because it crystallized for me what I do now. What I do now, working with teachers all around the world, actually is my element. I couldn't do this if I hadn't been a school teacher, but reading that book just crystallized for me, that's why I left university life. I am in my element. Wow, that's lovely. And uh, what is that feeling like being in your element? Do you find it, uh, ener- uh, is it energizing? Is it challenging? Is it yeah, the above? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So um, a couple of weeks ago, no, maybe a month ago now, I was in Australia and I, was, I did five days of workshops. So exactly. five one day workshops, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Yeah. And, you know, these were the first workshops I'd done face-to-face since COVID. So I was really worried about wow. um, my ability, my voice, my ability to keep on going with a jet lag. And in fact, I was in my element and it went perfectly apart from my knees. So 30 years of playing rugby and my knees are just shot. And so standing up for eight hours a day um, was the only thing that I found difficult. My wow. energy was kind of undiminished, which was, you know, I'm, I'm 66 now. So, you know, at some point I expect to kind of have to slow down a little bit, but right now I just don't feel like doing it. I, I'm right now, I'm never going to retire. Yeah. We, when you're in your element, you're in your element. That's, uh, that's great. Exactly. Um, Dylan, if you could have a, um, 
a dinner party with anybody, um, who would be there? Obviously, uh, your family uh, get a free seat at the table, but is there anyone that you'd love to sit down and, and have a chat with over dinner? Can I include people who, aren't, who are no longer with us? Of course. Yeah. So there's two, I think. One is John Tukey, statistician, um, just an extraordinary mind, um, just, just, an, just an amazing grasp of just the whole field of, of, of data and statistics. And closer to home, one of, one of the sadnesses in my life is that I never got to meet Samuel Messick, who was at Educational Testing Service and who did some really great work on validity. And that was at the core of my own work. Um, my professorship in education came before I did any work on formative assessment. So people wow. assume that wow. professor wow. formative assessment been a fact. My earlier work was on a summative assessment. And I would have loved to have had the chance just to talk to Samuel Messick about some of his ideas that, wow. that, 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 that he hints at, but, he, but he, I haven't been able to find anywhere where he's dealt with the questions that concern me currently. Yeah, look, that sounds like a, um, a fascinating uh, dinner party. Um, it, would, uh, it, it sounds like a, um, a really interesting set of conversations. So, uh, yeah, that, that sounds wonderful. Um, Dylan, just wondering, uh, what was your upbringing like and what are you most grateful for uh, from your parents? Um, I think the most important thing about my upbringing, it was, it was my parents got divorced when I was 18. Um, so. I think their marriage wasn't particularly happy. Um, but I don't think, as a, you know, until I was 13, 14, I don't think I ever noticed that as kids right. don't. Yes. So you know, it was quite a secure upbringing. But the interesting thing was I was brought up speaking only Welsh. Interesting. And I didn't learn to speak English until I was about 10 years old. And so one of the interesting things is that, you know, I, I am an, an English as an additional language learner. <laughs> and um, it, it certainly is interesting to just being brought up bilingual, um, as I was from the age of 10 onwards. It's just, I think that is um, an amazing um, gift to, to, to be just being brought up speaking two languages. Um, yeah. It just makes a whole lot of things make, make sense in the way that you wouldn't do, be able to do if you only spoke one language. Yeah, I would imagine um, there wouldn't be a lot of a lot of application for Welsh uh, outside of Wales, uh, but maybe the it was the skills of acquiring a second language and the skills of being able to um, uh, learn and comprehend um, uh, new ways of understanding, which are probably more beneficial to you. Is that was that the case in terms of learning an additional language? Funny you should mention that. The biggest break I got in my entire career, I got because I could speak Welsh. That's so I was actually a lecturer in maths education. I was training maths teachers and the government in, in decided to introduce a national curriculum in England. This was about 1989. And they wanted students to be tested at the age of 14 in English, maths, science and technology. Yeah. And there was a requirement that in Wales, the kids who were being taught through the medium of Welsh would actually take these tests in Welsh. And so I worked on the maths proposal. Yeah. And the people that we were working with had agreed that if we got more than one of the contracts, there were separate contracts for English, math, science, and technology. If there was, if there were more than one contract, there would be a, a central coordinating team. And we actually got all four contracts. Wow. And so I was, it was like an eight million pounds, like, like a $15 million grant um, for developing assessments. And I was asked to coordinate, the, to lead the coordinating team. And I think the thing that got the nod, I mean, I think I was very young. I was, I was certainly, um, you know, I was in my thirties, I think, um, in my early thirties. And the reason I got the nod was because one of the parts of the job was to represent the consortium through the medium of Welsh in Wales. Wow. So it's an, I always use that example of, you know, people still talk about planning their careers. And I'm just saying, you can't plan your career. What you can do, is take advantages, take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's fascinating. And I've heard the saying that things don't make sense. Sorry, it's impossible to join the dots moving forward, but when you look back, things tend to make sense. Has that been um, similar in your career or if you can call it a career or you're, you're following your passion or have you 
Um, do things make sense when you look back? Uh, did you have a plan or, or what were some of the ways? No, 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 not a plan. I mean, you know, you, uh, you, you're referring to Kierkegaard there, you know, the yes. tragedy of life is it has to be lived forwards, but can only be understood backwards. No, I mean, I, you know, I moved to the US in the 2003, not just because my wife and I talked about living in another country because I got my PhD quite late for an academic. Um, you know, we didn't think that was going to be a possibility. So we decided, you know, why not just give it a go? And so it, it seems to me that we, my, both my wife and I have taken opportunities as we found them, because this seems like a sensible thing to do at the time. And so, um, yeah, go for it. So I, I've never had a plan. I've never had a design. I've just done things that seem to be right at the time. It's reassuring to know, uh, because I think we can, um, we can definitely perceive these people that have done wonderful things or amazing things in education like yourself and so many other great thinkers that I've had the opportunity to um, uh, to interview. But I do think there is that common thread of just taking opportunities uh, and uh, not necessarily having a well thought out plan. But uh, it's really reassuring for somebody um, at my stage in my career to hear somebody as accomplished as you saying that, uh, because it puts things into perspective for me, I think, and makes it a little easier. I think there's a balance here. So there's a nice recent book by David Epstein, yep. a great writer called Range. And one of the things he does is compares Tiger Woods with Roger Federer. So Tiger Woods was brought up from a very young age to be a golfer. Whereas Roger Federer played a number of different sports until he decided to focus on tennis. Yeah. And so Epstein's argument is that you can, you, know, you can focus early on one thing and become a prodigy. Um, but I think his argument is, he doesn't say this out loud, but I think his argument is that because the world is becoming so complex, the idea of being clear about what you want to do from an early age may not be as appropriate as it used to be. Mm. And so the idea of having the range to take advantages of different opportunities yeah. as they present themselves may be more helpful in the future. Yeah. So I think there's an interesting kind of argument, you know, how early should you specialize? Yeah, definitely. Um, was there a teacher that had a significant impact in your life? And what were you, uh, what were you like at school? Um, I was pretty badly behaved quite a lot of the time, I think. Um, my handwriting was completely illegible. I was probably quite spastic when I was younger. Um, and I was probably kind of somewhere on the spectrum uh, in terms of autism. Um, I, was, I was good at maths for a couple of years, but then I moved from Cardiff to, to Altrincham, just south of Manchester where they did modern maths. And I went from being you know, in the top two or three kids in the, in the year group to being like the bottom. And that was quite a sobering experience to actually have no idea what was going on. Mm. And so I actually had spent a couple of years just trying to catch up with stuff that made no sense at all to me. I mean, I did catch up. And so there was one teacher, Alan Chisnell, who taught me um, uh, advanced level, A-level further maths. And uh, I, I think that he, he, was, he was just a, an extraordinary teacher and probably the, probably the teacher who had the most influence on my academic development. The teacher who had the most development on me personally was a geography teacher who wow. ran a weight training club every lunchtime. And that, at the school that I went to from the age of 13 to 18, mm -hmm. the, the, the lunch time was about an hour and 20 minutes long. That's and so I'd be one of these kids at the age of 12, 13. I was, you know, when, you know, when they appoint captains and then they take yeah. turns picking players, I was always the last to get picked at every single sport. That was me. And yeah. I, I, I don't know how it started, but I started just going to these weight training sessions every lunchtime from the age of 13, 14 onwards. Wow. And after about two or three years, I suddenly discovered that I was like one of the fastest runners and one of the strongest kids in the year group. So I became house athletics captain and house rugby captain, um, played for the first 15 rugby wow. team. And so it was quite a strange transition. It's almost like an ugly duckling story of just, you know, transitioning from being this completely useless, um, uh, physically uncoordinated person to becoming a jock. And, that, and I think it was Roy Coleman who had the biggest impact on me in that way. Wow. What was it about um, a physical activity that you found so appealing in, in school? Was it just the con this connection with your teacher or was there something more? No, I, I don't know, actually. I mean, yeah, I, I, it was just something to do, you know, and 
you know, lots of other kids were kicking balls around, which I didn't find very interesting. And it was just something to do. And, you know, he was, he was, a, he was a very witty teacher. Mm. So, um, you, you know, just listening to him just was, was fun and just the, yeah. just the kind of the banter. Yeah, I, um, I, I had the privilege of interviewing my uh, year three uh, teacher, Mrs. Taylor Jones from uh, Long Row Primary School uh, in uh, Belper um, a little while ago. And uh, she was that teacher for me that um, I can't remember what she taught me, to be honest, what she taught me in English, math, science. But what I remember is how she made me feel when I went into a classroom. And I remember feeling like the most important person in the room and of course there were probably 35 other students at the time but it were these things it, I'm fascinated by these things that teachers do that are quite often intangible that um that impact and so uh, it's amazing hearing everybody's story of a great teacher um so thank you uh, thank you for sharing that um Dylan I just did just want to uh, switch a little bit now and talk about assessment I mean there is no way that we can talk about your extensive work in the short period of time that we have together so I'll put all of your um, notes and resources uh, in the show notes but um for those who are not aware um what is assessment um what can it do and uh, and what 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 can it do I think this, the simplest way to think about assessment, at least in educational um, contexts, is an assessment is simply a procedure for drawing conclusions. Yeah. We give students things to do, we look at what they do, we draw conclusions. Yeah. And the point then is that there's no such thing as a valid assessment. Because if I give students a, re a maths test, but the reading demand is quite high. Mm. If a student gets a low score, I don't know what that means. Does it mean they couldn't read the questions or does it mean they couldn't do the maths? Yeah. And so the same test, if you gave that test to a group of really good readers, then the differences in scores would represent the differences in their maths achievement. Yeah. But if you gave it to a mixed group of students, some of which, some of whom had good reading and some of whom were much weaker, the differences in scores would also be in part due to differences in reading ability. Yeah. So the point is that test would give you valid information about maths achievement for one group of students, but not for a different group of students. Yeah. So that the really profound yeah. idea here is that validity cannot be a property of a test. Validity is a property of conclusions. Yeah. And so people say, this is a valid test. I'm saying that's a stupid thing to say. You know, describing a test as valid is like describing a rock as happy. It's called a category error in linguistics. It's yeah. ascribing to something that property it cannot possibly have. Yeah. And so quite the correct question is, you know, people say, is this a valid test? I say, tell me what you propose to conclude yeah. about a student when they see how they, when you see how they did on that test. And I will tell you whether those conclusions are valid. It's the conclusions that are valid, not the assessment itself. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and Dylan, what, what sorts of things, in your opinion, should we be assessing in schools? Because in, I know in Australia, my experience, obviously, in the UK, is that there is a whole range of standardised assessments that are mandatory. Um, we're assessing in English, in Australia, English, maths, uh, reading and writing. But surely there are other things happening in schools that are worthy of assessment. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, Australia with its, with its NAPLAN tests, Britain with its national curriculum tests. You, you tend to, when countries assess for national accountability purposes, they tend to focus on the things that are easiest to assess. And so, you know, maths and reading is always in the list. Other things, depending on the country, will be included. So, for example, in Singapore, the primary school leading examination also includes speaking and listening. So I think there are cultural differences here. But I think one of the things I've learned is that, you know, I can advise politicians about what kinds of assessment systems they might want to implement at a national level. But I tend to try to steer clear of these issues when I'm talking to teachers, because teachers have to do the job they have to do. Mm. And so telling them that they, have, they work in a system which has a stupid set of assessments is that's not particularly right. helpful. Yeah, that's right. So, so, you know, I never tell teachers what to teach. You know, look at the Australian national curriculum. There's way too much content. My hunch is the reason for this is that people who develop curricula cannot bear the thought that any kids have spare time on their hands. So they make sure there's enough stuff in the curriculum to keep the fastest learning kids busy for the whole year. Mm. But in a class of 10 year olds, 
the fastest learning kid is going to be learning about four times the speed of the slowest learning kid. So for most kids, there's far too much in the curriculum. So teachers have far too much to teach. And the question then is, what do you do with that? And I can't tell you what to do. I can't tell you how to resolve the impossible conflicts that are placed on teachers in the Australian and the British and the American system. Mm. What I hope to be able to do is to give you some ways of thinking about these issues so you can make smarter decisions for yourself. And so that, I think, in the last 10 years, my, my focus has been on tools for thinking, equipping teachers with tools for thinking about their job so they can actually make these decisions more effectively. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, we talked a little bit before about obviously the purpose of assessment, about how you interpret that information and what you use it for. Do you think school systems, generally speaking, have switched to assessment for accountability? Um, is it, it, do people want to see results uh, for the money that is being invested in education? And that's why we're assessing now, or is that a bit too uh, generalistic? I really don't think that parents and other key stakeholders want those kinds of assessments for accountability. But politicians either think they do or they see something that they can do. So, so I think this is what David Berliner calls a manufactured crisis. Yeah. And, and so politicians, you know, certainly you know, in Australia, people will point to Australia's declining PISA scores as a way of saying something must be done. So you know, here in the opposition, you say, well, look, these people have been in power for so long and the results have gone down. They don't know what they're doing. You should put us in power. So I think in general, I find these kinds of um, accountability measures are just being used for cover. So Dylan, tell me about um, accountability. So why, uh, why, are we, why do we seem to be assessing for accountability in our schools? Well, I think mostly it's done by politicians to get cover for the things they want to do anyway. Yeah. So I don't think parents uh, are that concerned. One of the most interesting findings from surveys of parents about educational quality in a country is that parents think that education across the whole country is going down the toilet, but they are lucky because their kids go to a good school. Mm. So there's this kind of really strange tension. And I think it's just this, what David Belinda calls a manufactured crisis. Yeah. That politicians are trying to say, we need to do something because everything's so bad. Whereas in fact, the people on the ground don't think that. Now they could be complacent, um, you know, but I think we have to be quite careful about listening to those kinds of claims. But I think the accountability thing is interesting because there are two basically different approaches. One way is, and this is the, the originally the British approach, is to take a system that's already used for, hold, for certifying student achievement and then to make it serve the purposes of accountability. So you have GCSEs and A-levels that were originally designed only to certify student competence, then being used to report on the quality of schools. A different approach, typically in the United States, and now say, for example, in NAPLAN in, in Australia, is the primary purpose of the assessment is accountability. So if a kid does badly on a year three NAPLAN test, they're not gonna to have to retake year three they're going to go into year four, no matter what happens. Yeah. So the point is, it's high stakes for the teacher, but not for the student. Mm. Which makes it a very perverse kind of assessment. Yeah. Because, because teachers know that if the kids don't think it's important, they're not going to try. So then teachers have to kind of impress upon their pupils the fact that this test is really important. It's not important for you, it's important for me. And mm. so you get this kind of really strange thing of, of kids being put under pressure to do well on a test that doesn't actually matter that much to them. Yeah. And so, and so I, I think if you're going to have an accountability system, they have to, you know, everybody involved has to have skin in the game, as the Americans say. Otherwise, yeah. the results you're getting aren't really aren't particularly meaningful. So um, there is so much um, in that, Dylan, and it's almost a podcast, a separate podcast episode, just talking about um, uh, uh, assessment for accountability. And so my mind is uh, my mind is swimming, but. Um, how can so how can we do this better because it seems like we know what doesn't work but we're doing it anyway so what can we do i mean i'm part of a system as well what can i do in my classroom to to help assess students better what sort of conversations or things can i put in place well i, I think the first thing to say is that assessment is expensive it takes time it takes effort it takes money 
And therefore, people try to make the same assessment instrument serve multiple purposes. Yeah. And that is, in general, a very bad thing. Yeah. So in England, we used to have this thing called the assessment of performance unit, mm -hmm. which would sample uh, students, like maybe just two from one school, two from another school, just to give a picture of the national achievement level in a particular year group. Yeah. And because there was no pressure attached to this, it was actually useful for politicians. Margaret Thatcher, when she was prime minister, couldn't see the purpose of having this if you also had blanket testing of all seven, 11, 14, and 16 year olds. So they got rid of the assessment performance unit. What then happened is that because the stakes were so high for these tests, teachers taught to the test. The scores went up. Of course. But of course, the underlying achievement didn't change very much at all. Yeah. So I, I think that when you're, when, if you're a teacher working in a system where there is high stakes assessment, I think the, the, the trap is to think that the best way to improve student achievement is to teach to the test. And certainly an amount of test preparation is helpful. If kids have never seen multiple choice questions before, then they're not gonna do very well. So depending on the format of the test that's used in your country, you might wanna make sure that students are familiar with that kind of format. But I think the evidence is that the best way to teach for the test is to teach for deep understanding. There's a particularly important example here in reading. Mm. So most countries tend to re test reading comprehension because it's relatively easy to test, they think. And so what we have in America, and I'm sure it's happening in Australia and Britain as well, you have teachers teaching reading comprehension strategies getting the main idea of a paragraph. Yes. Unfortunately, that's not a skill. Because once you can decode, whether you can understand the paragraph depends on how much background knowledge you have about what the paragraph is describing. Yeah. And so the best way to teach reading is not to teach reading comprehension strategies, it's to get students to read broadly, including in social studies and in science, as well as in, in maths mm. and in, in, in English. So, it's attractive that the best way to get to B from A is to head straight for B, but actually often it's actually to take a much more circuitous route by getting students to read. And there's lots of nice studies about cricket, about baseball, um, that show that actually reading ability predicts comprehension much less well than background knowledge about the sport being described. Wow, that's that's so interesting. And and Dylan, what are some of these tools for teachers that you mentioned before? And I know you, the focus of your research has been on this, but what, what are some of the findings of your research in this area? Well, I think the, the most important finding is that across the world, the most common decision that teachers make every single day is, do I need to go over this point one more time or can I move on to the next page? That kind of decision about, yep. do, I go, do I repeat or do I go on? Yep, I've been there. And what is pressing is the frequency with which teachers answer that question by making up a question that they haven't planned in advance, asking the class, having six students raise their hands, the teacher picks on one of those students, and if that student gives the correct answer, that teacher says, good, and moves on. In other words, teachers judge the level of understanding by only hearing from the confident, articulate students. Mm. And what I'm trying to suggest is, that's just not very smart. You can't possibly be meeting the learning needs of all the students in that classroom if you're only hearing from the confident, articulate students. Yeah. So the best way to think about the tools for teaching, I would say, is better evidence leads to better decisions, leads to better learning. Mm. Yeah. The idea is if you have better evidence about what's going on in your students' heads right now, you'll make better decisions. And that's why we call this stuff formative assessment. Because by thinking about what Madeleine Hunter back in the 1970s called frequent checks for understanding, she would, for example, ask students, where is the verb in this sentence? And the students would respond chorally by shouting out the word ran. Except, of course, what's happening is that the confident students are shouting out the word ran, ran and everybody else is trying to look like they mind the correct response. When your students respond chorally, the quality of your evidence is weak. Wow. But if you have the sentence written out on the board and A, B, C, D pointing up towards different words and asking students, you know, one for A, two for B, three for C, four for D, where is the verb? And students have to vote one, two, three or four. Now you're getting individual information from each individual student. Mm. Better evidence leads to better decisions, 
leads to better learning. Yeah. The other thing is better in, in two ways, broader, yes, but also deeper. So for example, in primary school mathematics, which is bigger, 0.25 or 0.3? Why is that worth asking? Because a lot of children think that 0.25 is bigger than 0.3 because 25 is bigger than three. Yeah. In secondary school science, teachers often ask, would your weight be the same on the moon? That's not a difficult question. Here's a better question. Would your mass be the same on the moon? Yeah. And most kids get that wrong. Because they think your mass would be less on the moon, but it isn't. It's exactly the same as it would be on Earth. It's the weight that varies. And so asking questions that give you insight into students' learning gives you deeper evidence. Yeah. And so this idea of broader and deeper evidence about what's going on in students' heads right now will allow the teacher to be more responsive to the students' learning needs. It increases engagement, and it also increases responsiveness. Yeah. So the, the big idea, really, is that teaching should embrace pedagogies of engagement, getting information from all the children rather than just the usual suspects mm. and a pedagogy of responsiveness, yeah. using the information you collect to adjust your teaching in real time to better meet the students' learning needs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dylan, I read a quote uh, that you said about yourself and I wouldn't, just, I wouldn't mind just reading it back to you and getting your thoughts on it. it. You said that people assume that I set out to wind people up. I don't. Why would, uh, why would people assume that you are setting out to cause trouble and to wind people up. You seem perfectly nice and perfectly reasonable uh, over Zoom, but why did you say that about yourself? Because I say things that I think are true, but that people haven't thought about. So, you know, I mean, uh, Australia, I mean, people talk about me in the US, they use the word challenging. Um, and of course in Australia, confronting. And confronting is a very kind of aggressive word, I think. Um, but, I'm, you know, I'm in a hurry and I don't want to spend time on telling people things they already know. I think if people have fundamental misconceptions, I should go straight to this idea that actually what you're saying is wrong. Mm. Yeah. So I think, I think people find that challenging. Um, you know, so for example, you know, people talk about formative assessments and I'm saying makes no sense because the same assessment can be used formatively or summatively. Yeah. Like validity, formativeness is not a property of the assessment, it's a, it's a, conclusion, it's a property of the conclusion that you draw. Mm. And so, you know, just things like that. Um, I'm very often regarded as, as challenging because I say that nobody can recognize good teaching when they see it. Everybody thinks they can. Everybody I've ever met in education thinks they know good teaching when they see it. The evidence is that they don't. Yeah. So in a way, I think I have that reputation because I seek out things that are true, but not well understood. Yeah. And so that, that, that you know, I, I, I try not to bother telling people stuff that I think is true and they already know. I try to find things that they might not know because everybody's time is valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, th I think it's a, um, I think it's, it's a compliment um, and a strength uh, to be able to call things and say things as they are because I mean, no one has time for to be wasted but um dylan how do we like we i, I work in quite an ingrained uh system we have done things in many ways the way that we have all always done things for a long period of time how do we begin to initiate change and initiate these kind of discussions um because there's a lot of people that i think enjoy the the certainty and the comfort of doing what they've always done but um how do we begin to have these conversations in a way that is sustainable I think, first of all, understanding that the reason that people do things the way they do it is because they work. Yeah. And, you know, I say to teachers, your existing routines are your greatest strength and your greatest, greatest liability. Yeah. Yet they get you through the day, but it means that change is hard. Mm. So, you know, I often liken it to when you first learn to drive a car, particularly if it's a manual car. And the first time you approach a roundabout, you realize with increasing horror, they're gonna to have to change gear, indicate, steer, and use the mirror all at the same time. And you think your brain is gonna explode with the effort. Yeah. Yeah. And yet once you acquire those skills, they become natural. Mm. So the automaticity is helpful because it means now you can actually do it without thinking, but it means that that automaticity makes it a very hard habit to change. So thinking about this as being two sides of the same coin, I think, first of all, is, is very important that, you know, change is hard. 
Um, it's often countercultural. So the whole idea that kids should raise their hands to show they want to answer, I think is unproductive. It's actually, you know, it's the same kids raise their hands yeah. and you probably don't need to hear from them. You need to hear from the other kids. Yeah. So, you know, why have kids raising their hands at all? So th those kinds of things, you know, change is hard. And the other thing to realize is that it's not a knowledge problem. You know, the expertise that teachers have is less like the knowledge of how to solve an equation and more like the knowledge of how to ride a bicycle. Yeah. I can explain to you how to solve an equation. I can't explain to you how to ride a bicycle. Yeah. And that's, I think, is, is important to understand. That's why change is so hard. You can't put an old head on young shoulders. You can't tell people how to be more effective teachers. They have to figure it out for themselves. The other perspective I'd bring to bear on this is just how slow change is in any case. So there's some wonderful stuff by James Besson in a book called Learning by Doing. And so factories used to use steam power to power machines. And over time, the steam engines were replaced with electric motors. What is interesting is for the first 20, 30 years, the way that electric power was used was to take out the steam engine and replace it with one huge electric motor that powered the whole factory with systems of belts and pulleys powering individual machines. It took them 30 years to realize that you could actually have an electric motor on each bench. Yeah. You know, the idea of the electric kettle. If you look at the, the evolution of the electric kettle, for about 30 years, they were the same shape as kettles that you put on a stove. Mm. Yeah. And then somebody had an idea that you could actually have a jug kettle. So you can actually just boil enough for one cup. But that took about 30 years to actually appear. Yeah. And so I think just understanding how, how slow change is. Mm. Heinz Wolf, an engineer, once said, you know, the future is further away than you think. Yeah. And so I think we have to understand that very few systems change. And this, I, th I think, goes to the heart of what Roger Scruton talks about in terms of conservatism. Because some people want to kind of tear down the existing system and replace it with something new. And I think what conservatives, uh, I, I think with a small c, um, feel is that if these things have stood the test of time, then we should be cautious about tearing them down. And that's why I like the analogy of Chesterton's fence. There's a short story by G.K. Chesterton. And this person wants to tear down this fence. I don't see the purpose of it. Let's, let us clear it away. And Chesterton asks, well, why was it put there? And the man says, I don't know. Yeah. In that case, he says, I will not let you tear it down. When you can come back and tell me why it was put there, I may allow you to destroy it. Wow. And so there's lots of things that are going on. We could say, well, I can't see the purpose of that. But given that these systems have evolved over a considerable period of time, if you can't see the purpose of that, then it may be fulfilling a function you haven't yet understood. Mm. And so I think we have, we have to understand also that change is difficult because often you know, human systems are very keenly evolved yeah. to suit the circumstances in which they operate. Let me give you one more example. When I first came across the American education system, I could not understand the SAT, the Scholastic Aptitude Test, as it used to be called. The idea of taking a general ability intelligence type test to decide which university you go to made no sense at all to me because in England, in Australia, you have to apply to a particular department in a university. You don't, you don't go and apply to the University of Melbourne, you apply to the maths department at the University of Melbourne to go and study mathematics. The idea of doing a general intelligence test made no sense at all to me. But of course it works in America because you don't go to Harvard or Princeton or Yale with a major declared, you go there and the first two years you follow a general curriculum. Mm -hmm. And only in your second or third year are you allowed to specialize. So in that system, the idea of a general assessment of ability and makes it. sense. Yeah. Even though it would make no sense at all in Australia or the UK. So what I find is that education systems are usually exquisitely attuned to the contexts in which they operate. I've sometimes joked that education systems rarely make sense from the outside, yeah. but they often make perfect sense from the inside. Yeah, I think I think that's really important. And just the um, the significance of just waiting 
and not jumping to conclusions and actually taking the time to uh, to look and see and to be part of the context, um, I think is is right. really important. Um, so, Dylan, um, what do you think the current COVID nineteen pandemic has taught us um, about the importance of the work that schools do? And and are you um, confident that we can learn these lessons, or do you think we're just going to spring back uh, to old habits? Well, I think we need to be cautious. I think the, the thing we should certainly embrace is the idea that many teachers have now had a crash course in educational technology. Yeah, Teachers have acquired expertise with technology that had we gone at the previous rate would have taken decades to acquire. Yeah. So I think I'm quite interested in the way that teachers can actually use that expertise they've gained in productive ways. I'm still worried that technology is often seen as a solution in search of a problem. Mm. And so often the technology gets in the way of the learning. Um, I'm, I've, I've commented previously that people seem to, seem to be desperately focused on the question of how much damage did COVID do rather than actually saying, here's the kids, what should we do with them right now? Yeah. So yes, some kids have missed out. Kids from poorer homes have missed out more. Um, but I think the only focus should be on helping kids do better. And the whole idea of recovering from COVID, well, if you are serious about it, shouldn't you want kids to have been recovering from a poor start in education 10 years ago? Mm. So, you know, I think this whole idea of recovering from COVID is a kind of a rather silly idea, really, because yeah. what we should be focusing on is designing systems that help all kids do better. So, you know, I mean, typically, for example, we see in Australia now, about 20% of kids leave school without the maths and the reading skills they need to participate effectively in society. That's been the case for a long time. Yeah. And so for me, I think, why weren't we doing something about this before COVID? Yeah. So, so in, you, in a way, I think yeah. COVID is a kind of wake, wake up call addressing issues that really we should have been addressing 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. So do you think it's mainly just exposed some weaknesses or some challenges that were already within our education systems? Yes, I think it's, it's, it's exposed some of the failures. Um, I, I think it goes back to the work of Benjamin Bloom mm -hmm. and his work on mastery learning. You know, we, we actually accept the range of achievement that we get in our schools as somehow okay. Mm. The fact is some students find learning easier than others. You can label it with concepts like IQ, but that doesn't really matter. The fact is that you know, although people might reject the idea of an IQ score, and this is quite important because you know, I asked a group of Australian teachers um, last month, is an IQ score at the age of 11 a good predictor of the ATAR rank? And most teachers were horrified, but in fact, it's not a bad predictor. It's not perfect, but it's actually one of the strongest predictors we have. Yeah. I hate that fact. I hate the fact that some kids are given brains that make learning easy. They've done nothing to deserve those brains, mm. but they have these, they're getting given those brains that soak up school stuff, and other kids get brains that aren't quite so good at soaking up school stuff. The question is, what do we do about that? Yeah. And I think that we have too easily accepted the normal distribution, the bell curve of results. And I think as teachers, our job is to destroy the bell curve. So my concern is with the 20% or so of Australians or Americans or British students who leave school without the skills they need to participate effectively in society. And I think we need to re-engineer our schools so that we don't accept that low level of achievement as being somehow a natural consequence. It is a natural consequence of treating everybody the same. Yeah. But I would say that treating the same people differently is unfair, but I think treating different people the same is equally unfair. Yeah. And we need to design our assessment systems so that our school systems, so that if a kid leaves our school not ready for adult life, we should treat that as a failure on our part, yeah. not just as a consequence of the bell curve. Yeah. And we won't, we won't succeed every single time, yeah. but I think that would be a nice, what uh, Jim Collins calls a big, hairy, audacious goal. A huge every single child, yeah. every single child yeah. leaving our schools ready to participate effectively in society. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I'm a huge fan of um, 
Jim Collins. I think his uh, his work is incredible, and uh, I like that you referenced him uh, in terms of education. Well, actually, I'm, I'm I'm very critical about it. Actually, okay, yeah. Apart yeah, from the... because in fact, if you actually, if you actually tr the, the thing is that he, his his big thesis from good to great doesn't take into account survivorship bias. Okay. So what he did was look at the companies that went from good to great. He didn't actually take into account the companies that went from good to gone. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's very true. So, so, so the, the fact is, there were other companies who pursued exactly the same strategies as the good to great companies did, but they failed, and so they're no longer around. And this is nicely illustrated by the story of Abraham Wald, the statistician. He worked in the military during the Second World War, and he was asked to advise about how to armor planes. And they had these really quite detailed data sets about where planes were getting hit. And they had, every single bullet mark, bullet hole in a plane was mapped. And the engineers were all for increasing the armor in those areas where planes were getting hit. And Abraham Wald says, that's exactly the wrong thing to do because the planes with holes in those locations are making it back. We need to be armoring planes where there are no bullet holes because those planes are not coming back. Yeah. And this is a really nice point. illustration of survivorship bias. This is why I hate people being asked, what's the secret of your success? They have no idea. And most people consistently overestimate the role of luck and the support of others in their own success. Yeah. Um, when I was a pro vice chancellor at King's, I was really quite effective. And I was shocked how ineffective I was in my second post as a pro vice chancellor. Okay. I really was. And, and I hadn't realized, I thought it was me. It wasn't, it was the people around me. And in my first job, I had amazing people who just implemented everything we discussed and agreed. And in my second job, I had people who second guessed those things. And I thought things got done and they didn't get done. But it was really sobering for me to realize that my previous success was more to do with the people around me than anything I did personally. We consistently overestimate our own contributions to our own successes. I think that is a, um, it's very wise advice to people that are listening and I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, Dylan, just as we um, begin to draw to a, a, a close, like I said, I do want to be respectful um, of your time. Um, there's a group of Aussie teachers that are currently on holidays, a much-deserved break, but are about to go back into the classroom in just over a week's time. Um, what advice um, would you give those teachers as they begin to step into the classroom next term when it comes to how we assess and how we understand our students' understanding of things? I think we have to start from the assumption, from, from the, just the recognition of how hard teaching is. Mm. So I have run a university and I've taught year eight maths. And I, there's no doubt in my mind that teaching year eight maths is much harder than running a university. Now I worked longer hours when I was running a university, but it's nothing like as hard as demanding. Your stresses come at you with, in completely uncontrolled ways. So I think the first thing is, you know, forgive yourself. Don't yeah. beat yourself up. You will fail. The best teachers fail all the time, all the time because they want every child to succeed. Yeah. You show me a teacher who doesn't think they're failing, and I will show you a teacher who is either not paying attention or has very low expectations of the students. Yeah. We fail because we want every child to succeed. Teachers are the most ridiculously optimistic people on the planet. You've taught this lesson so far 15 times in your career and never have more than half the kids got it, but this time is gonna be different. This time you're gonna nail it. This time every single child is gonna get whether it's has an apostrophe. We fail all the time because we, we hope that every child succeeds. And that's why I think the first thing I would say is embrace Carol Dweck's concept of growth mindset mm -hmm. as a teacher. Yeah. If you don't think you can be a better teacher next month than you were this month, and when you fail, and you will fail because the job is impossible, you'll be that cynical old teacher who blames the kids. What can you expect from these kids? Now, this creates problems. I feel really bad for all the kids I taught in my first year of teaching, because I really wasn't very good. And it's really uncomfortable for me to reflect on that. But the alternative is that I never got any better and that every kid I ever taught got that teacher I was in the first year. And that's much worse. So basically, don't beat yourself up. Forgive yourself. Look forward. What's next? 
And then embracing these ideas of formative assessment, how can I get better evidence from my students about what's going on in their heads? Yeah. One teacher, a science teacher in Greenwich in Southeast London said, formative assessment is all about making the students' voices louder and making the teachers' hearing better. I love that. The idea is that we can make our teaching much more responsive to our students' needs if we actually think about all of the students in the classroom and their learning needs rather than just the usual suspects. It slows you down yeah. because you find out the things you thought they, the students had understood have not been understood. Yeah. Formative assessment is uncomfortable for many teachers because they realize they've been teaching badly up till now because you were assuming everything was okay when it wasn't. Yeah. But I think that's a good thing to find out because now you can begin to address that. The idea is it slows you down, but in general, the research evidence shows pretty clearly, even on standardized tests like NAPLAN, going slower, taking more of the students with you increases average test scores. Yeah. So I think that the really powerful message here is there is no conflict between teaching well and increasing test scores. In fact, the best way to increase test scores is to teach well, a deep understanding and being responsive to your students' needs. Wow. Dylan, I think that is a wonderful place uh, to bring our interview to a conclusion. Um, I am hugely grateful uh, for your work and also for your time. Uh, it's this morning where I am. I know it's uh, afternoon or evening where you are, but uh, thank you so much for taking the time. And my hope is that there will be teachers uh, on their commute to work or while at home that will hear this and get inspired to get back into the classroom and do some um, really meaningful work. So thank you uh, for your time and I can't wait to uh, continue to follow uh, your work from all the way over here in Australia. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.